sermon text this morning is 1 Peter. I'm going to read, go back to verse 3, even though we'll be looking at verses 6 through 9. It's been a while since I've been in 1 Peter, I think October. So you might think, what are we doing in 1 Peter? I actually preached some sermons on 1 Peter a long time ago. All right, here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Thus far for the reading of God's word, let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you've gathered us here this morning. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your church. Most of all, we are grateful for Christ and his spirit. We pray this morning that you would help give us ears to hear the words we need to hear. Give me the words to say, to encourage, to strengthen. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. The world has two basic patterns for handling suffering and hardship. Two basic ways they do it. And the first one is very obvious. They complain. They whine. They grumble. This is easily identifiable. I work customer service for several years, and it is astonishing if you work customer service what you will hear people get upset about. And one lady was really upset that we stopped carrying her organic lemons. Real, I mean, like she was going to come across the counter and attack my manager because we did not carry her organic lemons. Now, maybe those organic lemons were great. I don't know, but that seemed excessive, okay? People, a lot of people have this mindset that any hardship, even the most minor hardship, is unfair, unjust, unrighteous, and they complain about it. They grumble about it. They go, they want more. They deserve more. That's kind of their mindset. They deserve more. This is not what they signed up for. This is not what they want. And we all recognize that as Christians. We recognize that. And we know that's not the way we're supposed to be. We know the, in the wilderness, Israel complained about God and complained about what God had given them, and God consistently rebuked them and poured out his wrath on them in various ways. So this is easily identifiable, and as Christians, we understand that is not the way we are supposed to go. Okay? But there's a second way of handling suffering, a way that over the last 10 to 15 years has gotten more and more traction that as Christians we might be attracted to. Okay? And that is what I will, I'm going to call stoicism. Okay? Stoicism. And this is the idea that men or we, human beings, are called to be tough, and to endure and not complain. Life is hard. Tough it out. Keep your chin up. Don't get upset. Don't complain about it. And lots of people are attracted to this type of handling of suffering today. Stoics, there's lots of them out there, have a huge following. There's a guy named Ryan Holiday who sells millions of books. His entire, all his books are built on this idea of just hardship is good for you. Suffering is good for you. It is healthy, okay? And your job is to endure it. A guy named Jocko Wheelink, funny name. You were not laughing if you saw him, though. He's a huge ex-Navy SEAL, and he's a Stoic. He's a Stoic. Okay? His mindset's one of Stoic. And as Christians, we hear that, we say, oh, that sounds a lot closer to the truth. And maybe it is closer to the truth. We know we're not supposed to complain. We think about Paul and Philippians, do all things without grumbling and complaining. We think about the toughness of Christ and the toughness of Paul, and we say, okay, 
that those Stoics, we like those guys, and Stoicism has a huge attraction, especially young men these days. They look out and they see all this reactionary thought, all these people getting angry. They see these Karens at customer service getting all mad. If your name's Karen, I'm sorry. <laughs> these Karens at customer service getting all mad and angry over the slightest little thing. And they say, there's got to be a better way. And then somebody comes, there's a better way. Stoicism, it's a better way. But is it? Is it a better way? Is it the Christian way? And I think a lot of Christians are drawn to that. But we are not Stoics. What separates us from these guys? What separates us from these guys who are just like, be tough, endure, push through to the end? What separates us from them? Well, the answer is found today in our passage in 1 Peter. In our passage in 1 Peter. And essentially, I'm going to give you the, the conclusion at the beginning, essentially the difference is joy in Jesus. That's essentially the difference between us and Stoics. Joy and Jesus, all right? And we're going to walk that through and see this in our passage, right? So first, first thing Peter says, and we're starting in verse 6. We'll go through verse 9. First thing Peter says is, in this you greatly rejoice. In this, he's talking about this salvation, this great salvation. Everything from verses 3 through 5, you greatly rejoice in this salvation. And the word rejoice there is not the typical word for rejoice. There's a word that's commonly used in the New Testament for rejoice, used dozens and dozens of times. This is not that word. This word is only used 11 times in the New Testament. Three of them are in 1 Peter, okay? And it means to be exceedingly glad. It could easily be translated, jump for joy, okay? It's not some sort of like reserve, kind of small joy. This is a jump for joy. This is an exceedingly glad joy that we're supposed to have. And the passage is bookended by that. So the word is in verse 6, and it comes up again in verse 8. This joy, this rejoicing that we're supposed to have why, Peter? Why, Peter, are we supposed to rejoice in this? What is good about our suffering? Remember, 1 Peter, the entire context is suffering. Everything about 1 Peter is about Christians who are having a hard time, who are being persecuted in various ways through the government, talks to the wife and in 1 Peter 3 there, and the wife is not someone who's living with a Christian husband, but she's someone who's living without, she doesn't have a Christian husband. And he talks about masters and servants, and he says, servants, serve your masters, even those who are harsh, so the entire context of 1 Peter is one of suffering and hardship and difficulty, okay? Peter, why are we supposed to rejoice in this suffering? How can I do this? Okay, and Peter walks us through the reasons that we are to do this. First, he says, your trials are small, okay? Notice how he says this in verse 6. Though now, for a little while, if need be. You can almost hear, the, hear Peter saying, yeah, well, it's just really not that big a deal, okay? It's really, your trials are really not that big a deal. And we might think, well, maybe their trials were, trials were small. Possibly, possibly. But remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, this momentary light affliction of ours, momentary light affliction. And remember Paul's life. Paul's life was filled with not momentary light affliction. Shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, being, brought, being betrayed, being drugged before governors. Okay? So the New Testament writers consistently downplay our suffering. Okay? It's not non-existent. We're not Eastern, we're not pantheist, uh, you know, where we believe that suffering is just in your mind, like in the Matrix, and if you just figure it out, you get rid of suffering. No, it's not like that. It's real suffering, but the New Testament writers consistently downplay it, like it's not as big a deal as we think it is. Why is that the case? Okay, and the answer is this great salvation that we have, this great salvation that we have, which is in verses three through five, okay, this great salvation. Future glory always tempers present pain for us as Christians. The future is always leaking back in, coming back in, and we're to remember where we're going, 
What is coming our great salvation? This glory, being with Christ, this inheritance, all this allows us to keep things in perspective, okay? When you're asking how bad things are, you always want to compare it to something else, okay? That's how we do it. How bad is it? Well, compared to what, okay? I had a friend of mine call me not too long ago, and he had just done his taxes, as we all do, okay? And he's like, oh, I underpaid last year. I underpaid, and it's awful. I'm thinking, oh, boy, what, how much do you owe? Okay, I'm thinking, how much do you owe? And I'm thinking, you know, thousands. This is one thousands of dollars, okay? He's like, well, $840. I'm like, oh, well, that's not that bad. That's not that bad. When I was a pastor in West Virginia, I got a, okay, just preface this. It was incorrect. But I got a bill from the IRS saying I owed $15,300. Okay? Now, when I'm making $45,000 a year, I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't compute. Luckily, it was wrong. You, you know, you get, those, you get those things from the IRS, you're like, did I do something wrong? You're always sure you're breaking some law somewhere, okay? So I'm sure I did something wrong. But when he said 8 to 40, it was just wasn't that big a deal. And so when we talk about our suffering compared to what? How bad is it? How bad is it compared to our future glory? Well, it's not bad at all. It feels bad. It feels bad. It presses in on us, but it's not that bad. Compared to our inheritance, our suffering is genuinely minor. It really is, no matter how bad it is. Even death itself is not something to be feared. It's not something to be, we're not supposed to run away from death, okay? Death is something that we're not supposed to be afraid of because of this future glory. And if we think about the martyrs and what they did, imagine yourself, and I think it's hard for us, imagine yourself like this man Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the earliest martyrs outside of the New Testament, one of the last links to the apostles. He's at least 80 years old, possibly older when he was martyred. And he comes before these guys, and they're all grilling him. They're trying to get him to deny Jesus. That's what we're trying to get him. Deny Jesus. Deny Jesus. He says, Jesus has been faithful to me for 80 years. How can I deny him? And they're like, well, he didn't seem to really care about the lions very much, Polycarp. So they're like, well, if you're not afraid of the lions, we're going to throw you to the fire. Polycarp says, well, you know what? There's a fire worse than that fire. The fire is of hell. <laughs> and I don't want to go there. Okay? So, and so they burned him. They burned him to death. They brought him over, piled up the sticks, and burned him to death. And we say, how did those men do that? How did they reach that point where they're willing to suffer that, what we would consider immense pain, suffer that, and keep going and be willing to do it for Jesus? Well, the answer is the future. The answer is the resurrection. The answer is that glory that's coming. They knew if they denied Jesus in that moment, they would miss that future glory. They would miss it. So that future glory comes back, and we're reminded. That's what Peter's saying. Do not forget, even though your suffering seemed kind of hard, do not forget his future glory, because that's the first reason we rejoice. Secondly, we rejoice because trials test our faith. Trials test our faith. Trials are good. Trials are good and necessary. We know this in every other part of our life. Okay? If you're studying something, you're learning a new skill, you know you, you don't know how well you know that skill until it's tested. Okay? Until it's tested. There's NBA playoffs going on right now. There's Stanley Cup playoffs going on right now. How good are these men? Well, we don't know until they're tested in the fire. A lot of teams are really good regular season. You get to the playoffs, or the, or the, yeah, the playoffs, they falter. Why? Because they cannot handle the pressure. So for us as Christians, testing is good. And this is cons a consistent theme, again, throughout the scriptures. Even in the Old Testament, Psalm 119.71 says, it was good for me that I had been afflicted. It was good, the psalmist says, that I may learn your statutes. Testing is always good. Was it good for Moses to be tested there for those 40 years before he went to lead him out of Egypt? Yes. Was it good for David to be tested? Yes, it was good. All that is good. Testing is good. In the New Testament, it becomes even clearer. Paul says in Romans 5.3, we glory in our tribulations. We glory in them. Why? Because they produce 
perseverance, and character, and ultimately hope. Okay? And the purpose of trials in our lives is never to crush us. This is never the reason God does it. God brings trials in our lives so we might see the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold. More precious than gold. Philippians 1.29, one other example of this. Paul says, it has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And this sounds like a gift, Paul is saying. You got this great gift of belief in Christ, but you also have this great gift of suffering. Well, Paul, it doesn't feel like a gift. Paul's like, it is a gift. It is necessary, okay? Now, we should not try to bring suffering on ourselves. We're not like you know, the medieval Roman Catholics who self-flagellated and whipped themselves. We don't try to bring suffering on ourselves, but when the Lord brings suffering to us, we should embrace it as a good thing. It is a gift from God when you suffer. That is how the Bible sees it. When there's hardship, it is a gift from God. And that's how we review it. Count it all joy, my brethren, we endure various trials. Remember, in the middle of this, and this again is one way we're separate from the Stoics, in the middle of this, you're not just doing this. Your Father in heaven, who loves you and cares for you and knows you and wants to see you grow and wants to see you prosper, your Father is overseeing that trial. He is there. And this is one of the big differences between us and the Stoics. Stoics have no God. It's just will. It's just willpower. Just doing the best they can. Trying to make it to the end. Why? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know. Why are you being tough? Okay? For us, we're tough because we have a father who loves us and cares for us and has brought that specific trial in your life at that specific time so you might grow to be more like Jesus. That's why it's there. Okay? So it tests our faith, the genuineness of our faith. Test us. Third thing, and this is where I'm going to spend a little more time. Peter says, your faith is the gen- that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? The goal of our suffering is glory. But whose glory? Right? Now, if we were writing this verse, here's what we would say. We would say, the testing of our faith leads to the praise, honor, and glory of Christ. And that would be correct. Of course it does. But that's not Peter's point. This is not Jesus' praise, honor, and glory. This is yours. This is mine. This is our praise, honor, and glory. One of the reasons we can rejoice in trials is that when we get to the other side, there is glory. There is a legitimate reward. And I think we kind of balk at this a little bit because we feel like, again, like a stoic, okay, we feel like we should not be excited about rewards, okay? We should just do our duty, do the thing we're supposed to do. And I'm not saying that's always bad. But what I am saying is the Bible, that's ha- in the Bible, it's halfway. All the way there is we long for, we work for, we strive for that glory that Jesus is going to give us on the last day. All of us. Let me just read you some verses. Listen to these verses. Matthew 5. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding, exceeding, sorry. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That's our word again. That's the word from Peter. You can see there, you got two words rejoice here. Rejoice, which is the normal word, and be exceedingly glad, which is the word translated rejoice in our passage. Be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Why? Because God is going to be glorified? Yes, he is, but that's not the only reason. It's because your reward is great. Another favorite one, I think I've mentioned this one before from the pulpit. If I have, forgive me, I'll say it again. Matthew 19. Peter comes up to Jesus, and Peter's like, listen, we've left everything for you, Jesus. We've left everything for you. What's in it for us? That's basically what Peter says in Matthew 19. 
Now, what would we do? What would we do in a circumstance? We would say, listen, Peter, tamp it down. You don't need to worry about what's in it for you, okay? What's in it for you doesn't matter, okay? Think about God's glory. Think about the glory of Jesus. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't tamp it down at all. Jesus fans the flames. Jesus says, you know what? Here, here I'll read it to you. Everyone who's left brothers or sisters or houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and also eternal life. So Jesus just fans the flames. Yes, Peter, you leave it all behind for me and guess what? There's more for you. There's more for you. We are insufficiently motivated by the rewards on the other side. We're insufficiently motivated by those. Let me give you a couple other examples of this. 2 Corinthians 4, which I've already mentioned. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. We're getting old. We're dying. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, again, that downplaying of suffering, our light affliction, is, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. And this is why we say the creeds every week, to remind us of what's eternal. What is going to last? Your suffering? No. Your suffering is not going to last. That hardship that feels right now, it's just like a huge weight on you, it's not going to last. You know what's going to last? Jesus and his kingdom and all those good things on the other side. Okay, a couple others here. I just want to emphasize this because I think as Christians, we don't like the idea that we are to strive for glory. I think it bothers us a little bit. It makes us a little anxious, like somehow we're doing something selfish. The Bible doesn't treat it that way. The Bible says, you follow Jesus, you will be rewarded, okay? James 1.12, we know beginning of James where it says, count it all joy, but James says this, and later in the same chapter, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him, okay? And Paul echoes this, 2 Timothy, last, verse, last book of the Bible he wrote. Before he died, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. See, this isn't like the Stanley Cup playoffs where there's only one champion at the end. Okay? It's not like that. Everybody gets crowned. Everybody gets glory. There's rewards for all. Okay? Maybe not a participation trophy. I don't know how that all works, but there's rewards for everybody. Everybody gets rewards. We are just not motivated by future glory like we ought to be, like we ought to be. And we're motivated, think about things we long for. Think about if you're on a team and you long for that trophy or you're closing a business deal or maybe you're trying to pay off your mortgage. We all work hard for these things and they're glorious and reach the end. When you send in that last, or I guess electronically transfer, that last mortgage payment, you're like, glory, this is fantastic. And those are good things. Those are all good things. But what about the glory at the end? What are we doing to work for that eternal reward. What Jesus says in John is the honor that comes from God, the honor that does not come from men, but the honor that comes from God. What are we doing to work for that glory? We're to strive for that glory, to long for it, to aim for it. Satan likes to blur our vision, though, especially in the middle of suffering. Everything gets foggy and fuzzy. Just to be clear, this does not mean you earn your salvation. Peter's not saying if you want to be loved by Jesus and saved from your sins, work really, really hard, okay? That's not how it works. I don't think any of the sons in here wake up in the morning, roll out of their bed and say, well, if I work really, really hard, maybe at the end of the day, I can be that guy's son. And it's not how it works. We don't live that way. We already belong to God. We've not earned our right at the table, 
that is given to us freely, unearned, but we do earn rewards in a sense. And that's, that's a consistent theme of the Bible over and over again. I don't know how it works out in the last day. I don't know the ins and outs of it. I don't know what exactly it's going to look like, but it is a promise of rewards. And some of you older saints are near the, near the finish line than others. And I want to talk to the older saints a bit and the younger saints a bit, okay? How many older saints, I won't mention you by name, um, some of you older saints here are closer to the finish line. And my encouragement to you is don't fear death. Finish the race. Jesus has conquered death. On the other side of that river, there's waiting for you praise, honor, and glory. This right here is waiting for you. Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my glory. Enter into my kingdom, okay? So that crown is laid up for you. And I encourage you, older saints, press through to the end. Press through to the end. But many of you in here have decades, Lord willing, of walking with Jesus. Decades where there's chances of suffering and hardship and difficulties coming in. What are things you can do to endure those in such a way that you get that praise, honor, and glory at the last day? Let me mention a few of these. First, learn the Bible. Learn the deep in your bones the patterns, thoughts, and themes of Scripture. If you want to be ready to endure suffering, know the Scriptures. Okay? We, all, we should know the patterns. Not just the words, but the patterns. What happens? Well, you die, and then what happens? You're raised from the dead. As Pastor Garner said on Easter Sunday, the disciples should have been shocked if Jesus didn't come out of the grave. Okay? That's what they should have had. If they knew their Old Testament, they understood it as well as they should have. Learn the Bible backwards, forwards, upside down. We, when we get those patterns deep in our bones, it's easier to see things rightly in the midst of suffering. Suffering makes things blurry. It makes things foggy. Darkness descends. And it's hard to remember the great truths. When you know the Bible deep in your bones, they pop back up and the Spirit brings those back into your life. Okay, so learn the Bible. Eat the Bible. That's what Ezekiel says. That's what Revelation says. Eat the Bible. Ingest it. Learn it. Knowing the Bible clears away the fog in the middle of suffering. For sure. Secondly, learn to handle small setbacks in a way that honors Christ. My dad loved to quote Jeremiah 12, 5, one of his favorite verses. I'm sure he quoted out of context numerous times as well. But anyway, Jeremiah 12, 5. Jeremiah is complaining to God about how hard things are. Okay, Jeremiah's like, remember, this is early in Jeremiah's ministry. This is hard. This is difficult, Lord. I don't know. I don't understand what's going on here. And this is what God says to him. God says to him, if you have run with men and they have wearied you, how can you run with horses? If you're weary in the time of peace, what will you do in a battle in the thick of the Jordan? What are you going to do? In other words, this isn't hard, Jeremiah. If you can't handle this, what are you going to do when the walls of Babylon or when the walls of Jerusalem are being torn down by Babylon? What are you going to do? Same with us. If you cannot handle small setbacks, if you can't handle small financial setbacks or small relationship setbacks, if you can't handle those things in a way that honors Christ, you're never going to handle the big thing in a way that honors Christ. It doesn't work that way, okay? God doesn't give big suffering and big hardship to people who cannot handle small suffering and small hardship. It doesn't work that way, okay? So learn to handle small setbacks in a way that honors Christ, okay? If you get upset at someone saying something mean about you on social media, what are you gonna do when you get fired, okay? For your walk with Christ, what are you gonna do? Throw a fit, get angry? We need to handle the small things in a way that honors Christ. If you can't do that, then you're not ready to graduate to the next level. And I think a lot of us want, and there's part of us that wants that moment. 
We want that moment where everything, we're all that, that polycarp moment. We're not getting burned at the stake, but we want that polycarp moment where we're, we're ready and we're all before everyone and we get the chance to say we love Jesus and we get to suffer for him. We, we, we should want that moment in a sense. That's a great thing. And God doesn't give it to most Christians, but he doesn't give it to some. But if you want that moment and you want to be ready for that moment, should the Lord give it to you, the answer to that is be faithful day by day in the setbacks and the hardships and the trials that God gives you on an everyday basis. Be faithful in those situations. If you can't be faithful there, guess what? You come to your polycarp moment, you're not going to be faithful there either. And that's not how it's going to work, okay? So learn the scriptures, handle small setbacks in a way that honors Christ. And third, cling to the body of Christ. Okay? C.S. Lewis has a great essay on this called Weight of Glory. And really a lot of what I'm saying here is, is uh, you can read about it in there. But the end of that essay, which you may not know this, the end of that essay is not about our glory, but it's about our neighbor's glory. At the end of that essay, he says, you have never run into a mere mortal. You've run into everyone around you is immortal. Everyone you meet is immortal. Okay? And what he says is the glory of our neighbor should be the, as great a concern as our own glory. Okay? We are here to press each other on to glory. We're here to press each other on so that they might have the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ just as we do. We cannot become glorious in the eyes of God, we cannot reach that well-done, good and faithful servant if we are not with the body of Christ. And some of you are going through hardships and people don't even know it. You should let people know. Why? Not so you can whine, not so you can grumble, not so you can complain, but so they can say, hey, listen, stick it out. Hang in there. Don't give up. Okay? So they can bring clarity Two things. Another C.S. I've been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis. So another C.S. Lewis quote here. There's a great um, character in the silver chair called Puddle Glum. And there's a great scene where there's this kind of magic fog descending on everyone in the room and everyone's about to, to abandon the, the plan and go over to the dark side and do bad things. And Puddle Glum sticks his foot in the fire. He sticks his foot in the fire and it smells nasty and it burns. And, and he's a marsh wiggle, so he's not a human. He sticks his foot in the fire, and it burns. And everyone's like, whoa. Like they, they wake up. They wake up. Okay, this is wrong. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. Okay? That's what you're there to do for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're there to say, listen, don't give up. Don't abandon ship. Okay? Don't compromise. Don't take the exit ramp. Okay? There's always exit ramps in suffering. There's always ways to go that make things easier for you that are compromised. Don't take the exit ramp. So, we need to cling to each other and help each other. The body of Christ is absolutely necessary for us reaching the finish line. Okay? Absolutely necessary for us getting there and being glorified by Jesus. Okay. So, learn the Bible, handle setbacks well, small setbacks well, and cling to the body of Christ. All right? So, Peter's telling us how can we rejoice in the middle of this suffering? How can we handle this in a way, why do we rejoice in the middle of suffering. So he's talked about our rewards. He's talked about the smallness of our suffering. He's talked about the genuineness, the testing of our faith. And then he gets to Jesus, okay? And this is really the key difference. Whom having not seen, verse eight, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet, believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, okay? Now, why does he say whom you have not seen? What does he say? Well, because Peter had seen him. Lots of people had seen him. There were thousands of people running around Israel at the time who had literally seen Jesus, okay? And these people might be like, well, we haven't seen Jesus. Are we kind of like second-class citizens? It's not an issue for us, but for them, it could have been an issue. Are we second-class citizens? 
Are we people because we haven't seen Jesus in the flesh? We're kind of down the scale a little bit. Peter's like, no, no. You have not seen him, yet you love him. Though you do not now see him, yet you believe in him. Believe in him. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Probably the key difference between us and the suffering of the world is Jesus. That's probably the key difference between all of it, okay? Peter wants us to keep in view this Christ, this crucified, this buried, this risen, this ascended Christ. He is the one who we love. He is the one who we're pursuing. If you're a stoic and you're tough and you're tough and you're tough and you get all the way into your life, what do you have? I mean, honestly, what do you have at the end of that? Death? You read the ancient stoics, yeah, that's it. You're just kind of whisked up into the stars. How glorious is that? Not glorious. Not glorious at all. At the end, what do we have? We have Jesus. We have Jesus waiting there. The shepherd, the good shepherd at the door saying, come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've finished. You've gotten to the end. This is not fate. This is not nature. It's not some just force pushes there. This is Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Master, our Brother, the one who loves us and cares for us. And Peter says, this is motivation. This is why you rejoice in suffering, because they can't take Jesus from you. Can't take Jesus from you. Always have Christ there, ready for you, waiting for you. And He grants us these rewards. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. He says, Grant you these rewards. So for us, as Christians, we are not to suffer like the world. We're not to suffer like the world. We're not to whine. We're not to grumble. We're not to complain. We're to cheerfully take on what the Lord gives to us. We're not also to be just toughing it out like Stoics. That's not an answer either. And I think a lot of young men think it is. That's not the answer either. What we do is we endure cheerfully, gratefully, growing, trusting in Jesus. We endure to the end until Jesus says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and gives us that crown. That is the end. That is the goal. So the difference between us and the world suffering is that we have joy and we have Jesus. If we have those two things, we have everything we need to suffer in a way that honors Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful and thankful for your kindness and your mercy. We're grateful and thankful for your word to us. We pray that you would help us in the middle of hardships, in the middle of difficulties, to remember these great truths. It is hard, Father, to remember that you are good, to remember these rewards when there's pain and suffering and difficulties. So help us, Father, to be faithful. If there are some who are particularly suffering today, I pray that you would give them strength and grace to endure and do what is right and to trust in those promises and to continue to trust and rest in their Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.